on our special program tonight, we are focused on the career and the accomplishment of Saul Bellow, who uh, passed away only about eight days ago and was buried only a few days ago at, in Brattleboro, Vermont. My guests are Richard Stern, professor of English uh, language and literature at the University of Chicago, a friend of Saul Bellow's for some 50 years, author of the forthcoming short story collection, Almonds to Jouf, that's a collected, uh, his collected stories, about to be published by Northwestern University Press. I don't at the moment give the titles of all of his very important novels, but uh, there are loads of them. Um, and he has been universally commended as a major American literary figure. Our other guest is also universally commended as a new literary figure, only recently um, uh, appeared on the literary horizon in this country and in the Western world. Alexander Hemon, otherwise known as Sasha, who is the author of the short story collections The Question of Bruno and Nowhere Man. And uh, Sasha teaches creative writing at Northwestern University as well as at the University of Illinois down in Urbana-Champaign. Gentlemen, uh, I think you will agree with me that we come here uh, not to praise Bellow nor to bury him. Uh, both of those have been done, but rather to appreciate and to interpret and to analyze his achievement. And I think we also need to relate that achievement, as one should in the tradition of Edmund Wilson, if not the latter-day critics, we need to relate that achievement to his life and to his experience. Richard, uh, overall, what is your estimation of what he accomplished and how he did it? Well, uh, Bellow brought into the American novel, I guess in a way the world novel, this marvelous mixture of the idiomatic, the street, the world of the con men, the world of the crooked politicians, the world of the coal dealers and the butchers, and uh, the world of high intellect, the world of philosophers and uh, great writers. And it's not a stew that he produced but a new form of uh, concentration. I mean, that's what art does, I guess. It gets you off the racket, the noise, and so on, and forces you to concentrate on a face, a portrait, a story, a musical development. And, and uh, Bellow from Dangling Man, or even earlier stories, through, I guess, Ravelstein, produced an extraordinary body of work that probably raised the intellectual and sensuous intelligence, uh, intellectual intelligence you can't say, the, raised all his readers and those to whom his readers talked, raised their consciousness of uh, the vivacity, the ebullience, the extraordinary complexity of uh, human experience. Directly reflective of those qualities in his writing is this appreciative paragraph, or perhaps two paragraphs, from an article by Amichiko Kakutani in the New York Times uh, directly after his death. This appeared on April 7th. And she says, cutting back and forth in time while draping every manner of philo philosophical digression upon the armature of his characters' lives, Mr. Bellow conjured both the busy mental life of his heroes men who live quite willfully in their heads and their daily creaturely existence 
their hectic encounters with tempestuous women, fast-talking pitchmen, professional jokesters, bumblers, bureaucrats, and poseurs. I think she rather catches a good deal of the quality. Yes, I, I think so, too. I, the, the business of switching back and forth in time is important. I mean, I, I, my guess is Sasha uh, and I, as practitioners ourselves, know how important it is in the narrative form to get everything in the way in the present tense, make the past present, make it vivid, and so on. And, and Bellow's way of doing that is quite remarkable. Sasha, how did you <coughs> come to Bellow? What was your first reading? I can't remember how exactly I arrived uh, at The Adventures of Augie March, but that was the first book I read um, by Bellow. And it was, uh, I was blown away by the intensity of it. Um, obviously, I wasn't present when it appeared. Uh, and, you know, could put it in the context of American literature only um, in retrospect, only by listening to Richard Stern or reading about it. But it was clear to me, uh, even reading it from in my situation, um, that it was a revolutionary book, a book in some ways. Um, it was so much different from, say, the, the Hemingway idiom, the sort of clenched jaw, masculine, you know, will suffer through this no matter what. Uh, writing. It was so uh, rich and, and intense and so invested in language, which is the kind of stuff I like. Did you read him here or in your youth in Sarajevo? I read him here. Um, there were translations, I do remember, but I was young and uh, it, it, he looked too official because he had just won the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. It was the kind of stuff that professors wanted you to read, so <laughs> consequently, I didn't want to read that. I've been uh, communing with my computer, computing with the internet, looking for some material. And I came across a most interesting quotation, and this from, from Saul Bellow, and this goes back to September 2003. So this is towards the end of his life and certainly the end of his writing career. In uh, an interview, I guess it must have been, with O Magazine of all sources, he says, and I look for your interpretation of just what he's telling us here. He says the following. There was a disturbance in my heart, a voice that spoke there and said, I want, I want, I want. It happened every afternoon. And when I tried to suppress it, it got even stronger. That's a little cryptic. What do you make of it? Well, it's, it's what Henderson, the Rain King, says. This endless desire, the endless curiosity, the endless need. And uh, when you were with Bellow, you actually saw this in motion. He had a fantastic sense of smell, of taste. His eyesight was terrific. He saw things that you didn't. He had trained himself to do this, but he was gifted in a he was able to pick things out. He was extremely musical. He played the violin as a boy. He still could play. I remember an occasion when he took up my daughter's half-size violin and just played beautifully, and he played the recorder. And he was doing that in his last days. What I'm saying is that he had a sensorium, sensuous powers, which were exceptional. And uh, 
The second thing that was exceptional was his ability to translate those into words. And uh, the I want business is his exceptional appetite, which uh, got him into a lot of trouble, some of which he, he solicited because uh, he relished difficult situations because they were wonderful literary situations. I, I told a story inadequately in the Tribune the other day about his calling me up one day and suggesting we go to someone's funeral. This is 45 years ago. And I said, but last week you were ridiculing this guy. I heard you. And he said, yeah, death is uh, so big, but Henry is so little. Now, what I left out was, and I'm not even sure I should say it now, but Henry's family was an old Chicago family that ran a celebrated undertaking business, and they had buried the mob. And I know now that, yes, Bellow was paying tribute to the grandeur of death and the smallness of Henry, but he hoped some of the mob figures would be there. <laughs> and uh, he could observe them, because like all of us here in Chicago, we're fascinated by this group of iron thugs. But he, he, he was fascinated by them, but he pursued them. He knew quite a number of them, didn't he? Well, he lived in Gus Alex's house once, but his great career, and he knew a little bit here or there. But he created the most interesting one of them all, Ronaldo Cantabile. Yeah. Not Cantabile, by in, the way, but In Humboldt's gift. Yeah, and that one scene in which <laughs> Cantabile uh, humiliates Citrine, the narrator, makes him s stand in the toilet while he defecates, and then takes him up to the top of, I guess it's the, not the Prudential, but one of the other skyscrapers that was being uh, built, and then tears up the money that he's forced Citrine to pay him back and throws it over the, the, the lights of Chicago. That's one of, one of the typical bellow marvels that uh, so beautiful. It was a grand gesture. Oh boy, the grand gesture is, that's a grand life making lots of grand gestures. Uh, a lesser gesture is that they wave at me from the table at times. Uh, because we're late for commercials, and we're going to stop for some of those right now, and then we return directly to Richard Stern and to Alexander Hemon after these words. And we return uh, to Richard Stern and Alexander Hemon, who joined us tonight in a special program which originates not from our regular studio, but from the Chicago Historical Society. And we return, uh, let me turn directly back to Alexander, to Sasha. You said that your first encounter was with, with his work was with... Uh, Augie March. Uh, yes. And I know you've marked a passage. Uh, give us your sense of the book, and then let's hear the passage. Well, the, the code that you read, um, I want, I want, I want, it's something that Augie March would have said and could have said and may have said, in fact, um, this desire to live, a desire that doesn't have a specific target, but just a desire to be completely and fully present in the world. It is so unlike, you know, the consumerist desires that are um, ruling the country and have, have ruled for a while. Um, and so this energy of Augie March is um, visible and audible, in fact, if you wish, uh, in the language that, that uh, Sol Bello uses. And he uses a whole range of voices and registers, and this is what is marvelous, covers the whole 
the whole field. Um, so, as, as Richard said, he's in the same book, in fact, in the same speech, in the same passage, you can have a person talking about, you know, Greek philosophy and then local thuggish news or thug news. Um, and the passage that I w want to read is, in fact, uh, in the middle of a scene in which Augie March is listening to Einhorn, a local, you know, um, scam lord, uh, pontificating on Socrates and Hamlet and all this, but doing so in the voice of a, of a you know, Chicago businessman. But in the middle of this all, uh, there's this beautiful passage that just slows down the whole scene and then um, changes the tone in the middle of it. Quiet, quiet, quiet afternoon in the backroom study with an oil cloth on the library table, busts on the wall, Invisible cars snoring and trembling toward the park, the sun shining into the yard outside the window barred against housebreakers, billiard balls kissing and bounding on the felt and sponge rubber, and the undertaker's back door, undertaker's back door still and stiller, kept sitting on the paths in the Lutheran gardens over the alley that were swept and garnished and scarcely ever trod by the chin-tied Danish deaconesses who'd come out on the cradle-ribbed and always fresh-painted porches of their home. This is pure poetry, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not only that, but it, this poetry is contrasted. This directly follows the passage the, of, um, in which Einhorn speaks in his inimitable Chicago voice. I'd like to ask uh, Sasha something, because there is a, a beauty in his work, which I think must be related to the fact that he is writing in a language which he did not speak for the first, I don't know, 20 <laughs> odd years of your life. And that's related to Bellow's language situation. His parents are Russian immigrants. They come to Montreal, Lachine, a little town of Montreal, and they speak Russian at home and Yiddish. Yiddish is the language of the home, as far as I can gather. In Montreal, the streets are full of French speakers. In school, Bellow speaks English. And I assume that as his brothers went to school and his sister Jane went to school, there was a certain amount of English there. But there was, in other words, this swirl of language. And out of it came perhaps the most beautiful American prose that's ever been written. I think you can say Melville. Uh, there are different, different types of prose, but of uh, the rich American prose, I think you can say Melville, to a certain degree Hawthorne. There is occasionally in Faulkner an extraordinary beautiful passage, of, and Faulkner's the only writer of this century who matches Bellow and Granger, I think. But out of this language, Swirl comes this beautiful work, and I, perhaps, Sasha, can can you can you perhaps describe some of what you went through and go through in the writing of of English? Well, I you know it's hard for me to speculate how Bellow may have felt, and he was young enough to have um, been able to accept English as his native language. But there's a certain privilege in entering a language that you um, you are not you cannot fully own because it's not your native language. And that, in fact, 
Uh, if you're scared of it, it might be limiting. But if you're not, it opens up possibilities that is, uh, you're not bound by the practices of your native language. In other words, your parents didn't correct you all the time, or you know, the teacher did not beat you because you misused the word. There's a certain freedom because you can always find an excuse in you know, not being a native speaker. Uh, in Augie March, I don't know if that, uh, the, the richness of language in Augie March comes from there, but there are moments, and quite a few of them, when he clearly makes up, not words, but uh, he has, there's a whole slew of hyphenated phrases that he makes up on the spot. They work once, and then they fall apart. You cannot really carry them, um, you know, to uh, into everyday speech. I, I, off the top of my head, there's a beautiful description of the evening Mississippi serenity, and you know, evening Mississippi. That's that's hyphenated, and somehow the image of um, the Mississippi in the evening conjures up this serenity, and that is something that is put together on the spot for the particular situation, and then it's dismantled, as it were, or it could be dismantled. I'm sure that uh, he was bilingual, uh, and probably, well, ultimately, the English dominated the Yiddish. He's said, I know that he did this famous translation just in an afternoon of uh, Gimple the Fool. Uh, with he others. spoke, he was very proud of Yiddish as a rich language, and he is said to have spoken it beautifully. I used to hear him with Kogi, Zita Kogan's husband, I don't know mm. if you knew him. And since I knew German, I could could follow a little, but he was very proud of that. His French was elegant, very limited. We actually we used to speak a kind of pidgin right. French together. I called him frequently Saul, and uh, you know, just as you for a friend you pick. But uh, I wanted to note that I've been reading some materials uh, in anticipation of tonight's program, and I read for the first time his uh, address upon receipt of the Nobel Prize in Literature, and. In the very opening paragraphs, he uh, talks about Conrad yes. and his deep appreciation for the challenge and the special privilege that Conrad was able to bring right. to his writing in English, because he came to it fresh rather than with the heavy load of a fully received tradition in that language. Right. He didn't always love these transitions. He, Nabokov was not one of his favorite writers. He mm. used to think he was uh, the, the language that was like playing. Uh, on a on a on a comb with tissue paper over it, and, uh, that's a little unfair, especially in Lolita. Let, let me give you a large assignment, uh, namely a description of the arc of Bellow's career. When you first met him, uh, he had not yet written most of what we know as his work. Uh, what what did he accomplish? What changes are visible? What maturation, what alterations in mood and in preoccupation? Well, in 1953, I hadn't met him, and that's when Augie March came out, 53, mm. 54. And I remember my friends and I, who were writers at Iowa, we were part of this Iowa Writers' Workshop, we were actually put off by Augie March. It seemed too eccentric, too willfully eccentric too consciously, not jazzy, but Bellows' form of jazz. We'd been trained by uh, Brooks and Warren and Tate and so on. Flaubert was our guy. Nothing in excess. Everything tied up neatly. Then I came and I met Bellow in 56. And I remember talking about Augie March. He said it was like, I said, you know, it looks as if it could go on forever. 
Well, he said it was like giving birth to Gargantua, you know. And then other times he would say, it just came to me. All I had to do was stick out pails and catch the, the water as it fell. But he didn't go on in that tremendous, ex, let's say extravagant but marvelous vein of Augie March. He started simmering down somewhat. And of course, his first two novels, The Victim and The Dangling Man, were also more closely ordered and right. were rather Flaubertian. One he might called say. them his MA and PhD. They were yeah. well-made, contained novels and so on. And, you know, they cr created quite a fuss and some people who praised him at that time never could get out of the fact that he broke through this girdle of Flaubert, as it were, and, and wrote Augie March and so on. But the next work was Seize the Day which is much tamped down, and it's a short novel, a form in which he really excelled. The form of it is so wonderful, the repetitions, the symmetry. You can admire it as almost like music. And he goes from a great manic character, Augie, to a kind of a lingering depressive. Yes, yeah. Tommy like Wilhelm. Tommy Wilhelm, yeah. um, the Ansoni Hotel, and always one of these great eccentrics, yeah. Dr. Tamkin, the crook. He, of course, he was a, internally a kind of crook. All writers, to some extent, are crooks. And, you oh. know, you want to go through boundaries. You're not, the whole point is not to write the way other people have written. You can't do it. I've known you almost as long as you knew Bellow. <laughs> uh, well, about 30 years, I sure. guess. Uh, I never knew that you were a crook. Do you want to explain that? <laughs> Wait till I take my tie off. Now, you know, I have my... You know, well, writers have a double lies. Yeah. Sasha doesn't go to, in the classroom with the same spirit that he sits at the typewriter, the computer, or with a pencil. It's a totally different experience. But let me persist on this. I asked you to uh, characterize the arc of his career, the arc of his achievement. Beyond Augie March, what do we find? Well, the... And beyond uh, Seize the Day. Well, the, the next book was this I Want, I Want book. Henderson's, the first one I read in manuscript. I'd, I'd made a small contribution to it because he had, he, there was an incident there that, which I said, hey, that's out of Candide. So he made up another incident. I felt, you know, that brings you closer together to somebody. And uh, what that was, the prose is almost bland there, but, it's, but there's a great beauty in it. And uh, it's, it's, it's a fantasy story. As somebody who goes to Africa, uh, Bellow hadn't been to Africa. He'd studied with Melvin Herskovitz up at uh, Northwestern. He'd studied anthropology and so on. That's different. This is an Africa totally Belovian. And the language used in it, he makes up. And he enjoyed that. Uh, from that, he entered into the, pers the personal. I mean, he had this very rough business with uh, his wife going off with the person to whom he was very close. And I actually remember sitting in the quadrangles building, and he literally said, I'm going to get a gun, shoot him. Of course, writers don't shoot people usually. I mean, <laughs> Verlaine shot Rambeau, but, uh, but what that happens in the book. And Herzog is a tormented man who's half mad with this frustration and fury at the beginning of the book. And his mind is a chaos, and part of the chaos is his writing letters to everybody. 
Let us to the living and let us to the dead. Let us to the ordinary and let us to the famous. And so you have a terrifically charged up book. Everything is sort of present and vivid. Now, Sasha said that, you know, you, you said that that book, you didn't care for that. No, I, I never really finished it. <laughs> and, but for, you know, living in the, the American milieu, that seemed to us a great breakthrough book. To, make, to bring everything on the table now and to be able to be so free is just to, whenever you wanted something else, boom, you wrote a letter. President Eisenhower, Heidegger, anybody. We have to pause. Oh, We're sorry. not finished with your description of his career, but some commercials are overdue. But I must ask you, what was the year of the publication of Herzog? Uh, uh, 64, I think. 64, exactly. Uh, we came to the, uh, Chicago. I came to the University of Chicago in 65. Oh. And in preparation for coming, I read Herzog, knowing <laughs> that Bellow was here. And reading it, I was very excited at the thought that he will be a colleague, not in the same department, but I got to beat this guy. Yeah. And I did. Uh, and in a most unusual way, I'd met him at some reception, and then this is a mere anecdote, but I, but it's of some, and I don't think I've ever told you this. I was on the streets of Hyde Park someplace, walking to whatever I was going to, and Saul Bellow came along, and he greeted me, which flattered me a bit that he remembered having met me at some large reception, and then he said, uh, "My son is in one of your classes," and I said, "Yes, I know that." And it was his son, Gregory, who was in an undergraduate course that I was teaching. And he said, do you have some time? Almost petitioning me and extremely modest about it. I said, of course. He said, let's go get a cup of coffee. And we went into a place to get the coffee. And he really wanted to know. He, he conveyed in an almost a naive and earnestness the concern of a father for the welfare and the achievement and the seriousness of his son. He really was asking essentially, how's my son doing? And please tell me the truth. I was able to tell him he seems a very intelligent and pleasant young man and everything's fine. But it was very touching. And it's not a, a, an image of Bellow that I can easily accommodate to all the rest of the, the picture of him that we have. Well, like all of us, he's many men. Yeah. And uh, not always pleasant. This but, was a quite, quite pleasant encounter. But basically, an extraordinarily wonderful human being. We pause overdue for some commercials, and then we shall return to Richard Stern and to Alexander Hemon. And we return to a, a quick overview of the career of Saul Bellow. Uh, there are other novels and stories, of course, that we haven't mentioned. Some of the main ones that follow from the, from the ones that we have already uh, only briefly discussed are Humboldt's Gift, uh, Mr. Samler's Planet, uh, The Dean's December, Ravelstein was his very last work, there are yet others that I haven't mentioned. What does one sense as one examines the whole course of the work about changes in the artist's intention and his achievement and in the mood? Do we see, for example, Bellow aging? Oh, I think so, yeah. You, after Humboldt's Cliff, you, there are no really big books. Uh, they got smaller and smaller. Then Ravelstein, I think, was broken off of a work which was to be quite long and which he was having a lot of trouble with. I think he'd worked seven, eight, nine years on it. And then the death of his friend Alan Bloom came along and what he did was turn it into a portrait. He was a great portraitist. I mean, he's in the, the only thing I can compare him to is not somebody in literature, but somebody in painting, the Flemish painters, so that you can look at a, a, a figure, and the figure's wearing, say, a fur coat, and 
you, if you bring a, micro, a magnifying glass, you can actually count the hairs on the fur coat or on the eyebrow, and you can see the figure on a little metal. And Bello, for Bello, as for a few other writers, Turgenev, I think of, but I don't think he's in Bello's class myself, but a, a person was almost of infinite interest. There is no way you could stop the portrait. The portrait keeps going and going and going. But his portraits are compounds very often of many people he's known, uh, even though generally you have a sense that you're reading a Roman Arclay somehow. Uh, but Ravelstein is the least disguised of all of his portraits, is it not? I think he's got clearly, a great clearly deal Alan of Bloom. Bloom. Yeah. True, but Bloom would have been thrilled because it's Bloom perfected in his oddities. Bloom's eccentricities are raised to a wonderful power. Even though many critics uh, and friends and former friends faulted him for having exposed as much as he did of Bloom's life. Bloom would have been, uh, in my opinion, thrilled to have himself painted like this on this Sistine Chapel, as it were. It's not as if he's one of the villains in that chapel, hanging empty like an old sack or something like that. Nobody really would like to be commemorated through the But he reveals Bloom a as a, ho a homosexual who died of AIDS. But Bloom was not that's what people ashamed were angry about. of uh, at all. I mean, he, he didn't flaunt it. He, this was his life, right. and he lived it openly. And uh, as I said, he wouldn't have minded, yeah. in, in my opinion. That book uh, and other works of his certainly raises for me an interesting side angle on him, and I wonder how Alexander responds to this, uh, namely uh, the use of the university as a scene for uh, a novelized representation of life and its burdens and its joys and its complexities and its confusions. Uh, he is, among other things, an academic novelist. Uh, it's a genre which I've always rather enjoyed as an academic man who uh, thinks there's a great deal to be said, most of it critical, about the life of the mind as lived on the American campus. Um, but. Uh, how do you respond to that? You you are teaching now, but you have not been you haven't had a full academic career, I know. No, I probably won't. <laughs> Just as well. Um, but I think that's in particularly interesting. It's a, it's a widespread genre, and there are a lot of books, and he may have been one of the early ones or the best ones, certainly. But what is interesting in Bellow's case is that you know his um, philosophy, as it were, is a values thought. Um, you know, the ideas, there's a certain amount, a large amount of platonic idealism in his works. And so in that context, the university, it's the home of thought. It's sort of a natural environment for a lot of his characters. Uh, people who spend time thinking about the way that the world, and not the world, the world in larger sense, the world of uh, ideas and, and um, souls operate. So the university is where it happens for him. Now, you know, universities these days might not be uh, the way the University of Chicago was when he was uh, in high part well, writing Her and thinking. Her Herzog is named for a professor at the University of Chicago who's going mad. Right, yeah. So um, the, the spending time at, on campus that is thinking on campus, as it were, it, uh, at the same time intensifies this thought process. And from the point of view of building a character, allows a character like Herzog to, you know, write letters to uh, philosophers and in an informed manner. But it also isolates this world from the rest of the um, from the rest of America, 
which was uh, going through, you know, some hard times at a time of Herzog in more ways than one. And so it's, it's a, you know, it's a mixed blessing in some ways, I think, in Bellow's case, but also in terms of the genre. Randall Jarrell, Mary McCarthy, David Lodge, so many others could be named, distinguished writers who've tried to explain and to characterize uh, and, and often wind up ridiculing academic life. Well, Bellow doesn't write about academic poli politics. He's not interested in that. Well, except, except in the... The beans. university is a place where people can, can sit down and talk about books, But you're neglecting, you're neglecting the character in The Dean's December. Well, The Dean's December yeah, is, I think, a lesser book. And it, it circles about an actual murder that took place in Hyde Park. So it's an unusual university situation. I mean, uh, uh, there's only one person that's been killed on the campus in the University of Chicago in all its hundred years, an interesting case. But, uh, but Biller was himself not a standard academic person. You know, he traveled all over the world. He knew anybody he wanted. I mean, uh, uh, I remember when I heard uh, Marilyn Monroe was coming to town. I knew he knew Miller. I said, you call Miller. Miller will call Marilyn. Marilyn will call you, you call me, we'll go out and have a good time. <laughs> well, all those calls went through but one. So I stayed at home. <laughs> but anyway, he went out with Marilyn and he had an experience which was very memorable. He, you know, he had a terrific sense of physical geography. Her, his description of the translucence of her skin and of... Uh, her eyes, her hair, her body, her legs, it was marvelous. But at any rate, she was terrific too. She wrote in the pump room book, it's wonderful to be in Saul Bellow's town. But what he learned was the police escort, the limousines, the incredible pressure of attention. Uh, I don't think he ever used that. He talked about it in a talk once in a while, but he never, he never wrote about that. But. Uh, it, it was a, a marvelous experience. The, and then when he went to England, he saw the prime minister, and he took a girlfriend, which was a little unusual. And, uh, and the same thing when, you know, sometimes when he would go to the White House. Someone we've so, not talked about is the political so, Bellow, or at least Bellow as social critic and social observer. I offer you a simple quotation. I'm not quite sure what the source is, probably from an interview. Uh, open discussion of many major public questions has for some time now been taboo. We can't open our mouths without being denounced as racists, misogynists, supremacists, imperialists, or fascists. As for the media, they stand ready to trash anyone so designated. That's a reflection of his having turned uh, toward a kind of conservative worldview in uh, the, the last few decades of his life. But in some ways it follows from this you know, platonic idealism in which any sort of um, dealing with material circumstances of a person's life is, is violating the purity and the sanctity of, of thought. And, you know, things have happened in this country, and good things have happened from civil rights movements on, which violated the hierarchies that uh, Bellow, even if unwillingly or you know, unconsciously, uh, enjoyed. So there's a generation, there are a lot of people in his generation who find uh, the changes in the political discourse as um, they used to find it. I, I don't know how he would respond or how he responded to you know, the current developments where no one 
in the right mind could really accuse media of being too liberal or, yeah. you know. But he did wander in his life, didn't he, from left to right and uh, uh, off that dimension to yet others, but always struggling with just where he wanted to position himself with regard to the public issues. Well, uh, that's, that's true in a sense. I think he would hate to be fixed at any viewpoint. And when you become that famous, it's the job of people on the newspapers and in the other media to fix you in a certain position so they can challenge you in that position and upset you or confront you with somebody from a different position. This is detestable and this he couldn't bear. There was no part of his life really in which he wanted to be fixed. Even in paternity, not as a husband, not as a lover, not, and certainly not as a writer. And so when he would make a remark where is the Tolstoy of the Papuans, or the, you know, the Proust of the Papuans? Where's the Tolstoy of the Zulus? You know, as a sort of challenge, this is taken as a racist remark. And so he's pinned against the wall and then has to struggle against being pinned. And, and uh, so this is one of the prices of, of fame. I thought he did marvelously with it, partly because he knew, learned how to seclude himself as well. But you can't live in a cave and be the kind of writer he was. There's also a difference between, uh, you know, um, what they said in his books and what he says as a, as a public person. Absolutely. There's in a story called Something to Remember Me By, which is a great story. Um, the narrator says this is a narrative, not an argument. In his uh, books, in his novels, you know, there's a democracy of voices, however you take it. And, it's, and he's hard to pinpoint in his books when he makes a public statement that it's isolated, or even if it's not isolated, if it's just the fact that it's a public statement, it's easier to argue against it. But it's hard to argue against books. And even if you argue, it's a rich argument and a continuous uh, exchange of ideas. Yeah, what Sasha says is absolutely right, it seems to me. Uh, I remember wondering if so uh, Bella was going to publish his essays, of which there are let's say 150, practically all of them extremely interesting. He said he learned early, I think from Schopenhauer actually, that opinion is something you can disagree with and argue with. You can't argue with a work of fiction. I mean, there are different characters saying different things, no matter how outrageous or they're not mine, there is the character who says this sort of thing. He was really quite unfashionable when it comes to the way in which fiction is done these days, was he not? He's unfashionable now except for very advanced young people of whom I saw a few in Las Vegas last week, some young writers. But they were mostly reading what they had learned in high school, what the book that shows up in high school is Sees the Day. And the richer books are not being read now, just as Faulkner no, when wasn't I, read. When I say he's unfashionable, I don't mean that he's not read. I think he's still widely read. Well, I'm talking yeah. rather about how others write. Well, who can write like that? Who can write like Faulkner? If you try to, you make a. But he was rather stuff. he was rather offended by the postmod style that has predominated, was he? He not? was terrific at singling out young writers. He kept up, as far as I know, to almost the very end. There's also, I think, a problem with the um, with the situation of creative writing programs, and maybe I shouldn't be talking about this publicly, but uh, creative writing, as a you know, they sort of limit the sentences, the language, so it could be handled more easily. 
when I taught Augie March, a lot of my students, they could not believe that he actually meant to do this, that okay. it was important to them to think that he meant to write a sentence like the one I read. Uh, this sort of exuberance, that, you know, the, uh, what James Wood, the critic, called daring uninsured sentences. This is kind of thing mm -hmm. that people are trained in creative writing programs to clip and get, you know, to the point very quickly. I, it's really hard for me to imagine that a book or pass, a passage from Augie March would pass uh, many uh, a, writer, a writing instructor. One of the leading British writers was much drawn to him, uh, namely Martin Amos. I've never quite understood that connection. Well, uh, you know, Amos is the son of a brilliant writer. Sir Kingsley. Kingsley. And he, he was looking for a different kind of father. Uh -huh. He discovered Bellow, and he's a, paid wonderful tribute to him. Apparently, he spoke the other day in Brattleboro uh, at his funeral. Yes, I think Amos is at his least good when he's trying to sound like Bellow, as in the book Money. But he's a good writer, and he, yes, he worships Bellow. Uh, we are going to pause shortly for the usual reasons, and then we shall return. Though it is time to say that we're opening the phone lines, <clears throat> and we'll, we will be taking phones even though we're not in the regular studio. The number, of course, is 5917200. We will also be taking questions and comments from members of the live audience here at the Chicago Historical Society. And all of that will continue directly after these words. And we return in our commemoration, our evaluation, our appreciation of the career and the achievement of Saul Bellow to our two guests of the evening, Alexander Hemon and Richard Stern. And uh, we uh, urge that if you want to join us to pose a question or offer a comment or a thought, uh, that you move quickly, either here in the audience up to the front where you can talk into the microphone that is set up, or for our regular listeners, uh, over the telephones, the number is ever 591-7200, 591-7200. Get those calls in quickly. We will be with you shortly. Let's do a, a bit more of listening to Bellow. And Richard, you've selected something. Explain what we've got and set it for us. Well, it was said for quite a while that Bellow couldn't do women. And uh, I'm going to read a wonderful longish story called Leaving the Yellow House, about a woman, and you'll hear a description named Hattie, who lives out in the West. Uh, Bellow wrote this shortly after he was out in Reno getting a divorce. Uh, Arthur Miller was out there getting a divorce, and actually he, Bellow learned the story about the Mustangs, which turned into the uh, film The Misfits, about the only thing that uh, Miller wrote while he was married to the beauteous Miss Monroe. This is not the beauteous Miss Monroe, but this is Hattie. You couldn't help being fond of Hattie. She was big and cheerful, puffy, comic, boastful, with a big round back and stiff, rather long legs. Before the century began, she had graduated from finishing school and studied the organ in Paris but now she didn't know a note from a skillet. She had tantrums when she played canasta, and all that remained of her fine fair hair was frizzled along her forehead in small gray curls. Her forehead was not much wrinkled, but the skin was bluish, the color of skim milk. 
She walked with long strides in spite of the heaviness of her hips, pushing on, round-backed with her shoulders and showing the flat rubber bottoms of her shoes. Now, now look what's in that thing. I mean, the way he moves from her finishing school to her, to her size, her round back, her to playing the organ in Paris, then this amazing description of her forehead and the skin, which has the blue of skim milk. I mean, who would notice that? This guy noticed it. Then she, he goes on to her, the flat rubber heels and so on. And that is one paragraph. There are 40 pages of this story, and the description never stops. You feel as if this guy knows every atom. And it's, it's astonishing. It's a great, great portrait. The story is wonderful, too. In brief, the idea is, whom is Hattie going to leave her yellow house to? She has an accident driving. She's a lousy driver. She gets into a gulch, and she breaks her arm when she's trying to get the car out. Looks as if she's on her last legs. Who is she going to leave the house to? Finally, the only person she knows worth leaving it to is herself. So that's leaving the yellow house. But what I wanted to call attention to is this unbelievable gift of portraiture. One man who has written, I think, quite intelligently about him and very appreciatively is James Wood. I think they taught a course together at one point, did they not? They're close, son. Yeah. yeah. And um, here's something by Wood. Uh, great stylists should be as rare as great writers. Saul Bellow is probably the greatest writer of American prose of the 20th century, where greatest means most abundant, various, precise, rich, lyrical. This seems a relatively uncontroversial claim. The august raciness, the Melvillian enormities and cascades, the Joycean wit and metaphoricity, isn't that a great word, metaphoricity, uh, the lancing similes with their sharp American nibs, and he quotes one, paren, he was meteor bearded like John Brown, close paren, uh, the happy rolling freedom of the daring uninsured sentences. That was something you mentioned before, didn't you, Sasha? Uh, the prose absolutely ripe with inheritance, bursting with the memories of Shakespeare and Lawrence, yet prepared for modern emergencies. The Argus eye for detail and controlling all this, the firm metaphysical intelligence, all this is now thought of as bellows, as Belovian. It, it is the prose Coleridge described as having the hooks and eyes of memory. <laughs> uh, what a phrase that is. What, well, a, what, accounts, what accounts for this man? <laughs> You both are writers, you know writers. Where does this kind of sensibility originate? It's, it's hard to tell. I wish Apart I knew from sheer one. intelligence and, uh, and whatever. I think that, you know, for every writer, uh, for all good writers, I think that to me it seems that the primary uh, thing is the relation to the language that they're using. This is the entry to all these um, categories that James Wood mentions. I mean, you get to Melville by reading Melville uh, in his native language. Um, language contains all these possibilities. And so the first step is to, to play with sentences. Um, to me, the, the most fascinating thing about Bello is his language, the way he builds uh, first phrase, he, the way he chooses words and builds phrases and sentences and whole paragraphs. And this accumulation uh, 
the population of the novel, the linguistic population of the novel is just amazing. This is what is perhaps lacking in a lot of contemporary American fiction, this fear of language, that somehow if your sentences are too long or too rich that you lose the reader. But the readers that Bellow got for himself are, are the good readers, people who have patience, and at the very least, and people who, um, who enjoy language, who enjoy speaking and reading. And these are the, you know, this is the best kind of readers. These are um, the readers that I would like to have, obviously. But I think this is the, the crucial thing with Bellow, the language that he uses. And in, in American language, he recognized in Augie Marge the possibilities of marrying both, you know, the highfalutin discourse of philosophy and thought and then the street slang of, you know, Chicago thugs. And these were not mutually exclusive. He was not writing for one particular audience. Everybody could read that. He is certainly an urban writer, but does he ever do anything with the pastoral scene? Oh, he's, he's very good at the country. He, you know, he lived in the country. He worked in the garden. He loved that. Raised tomatoes. Remember the beefsteak tomatoes? And, and he was very observant. So if, you, if you're in the country and, you're, you, you're, and you observe and you think about expressing what you observe, they're going to be wonderful things. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, he's great anywhere that he chooses to be. Mm -hmm. But sure, I guess he'll be remembered for the urban work. You know, there are other great stylists. You don't have to be this um, extravagant, let's say. Uh, I, I read two years ago, to my surprise, stories of Hemingway I'd never read. They're in that edition, the so-called Think of Vigia edition, which is three sons put together. And there were, I think, 15 stories I hadn't read. And I noticed that in these stories, which he wrote many in the last part of his life, there was, it was so clear that there was true experience and thought about that experience behind these rather bare sentences that I began to feel in, in Hemingway a solidity that I had not noticed before. So that when I turned the next day to one of my, a writer that I love and admire, Flannery O'Connor, and read one of her stories, I felt this is just decorative. I, I, I didn't want to go on because she is a great, a wonderful writer and I'm not going to diminish her. But next to that sort of cryptic depth of, of Hemingway, I was surprised. Now, as Sasha said earlier, Bellow reacted against that dryness, that cryptic quality, the, the stoicism, and uh, it was time for a different type of language, a different type of thought. Uh, I mean, Faulkner had, had done it also in a different way. Sasha, what, what do you know about, and what can you tell us about his um, influence uh, or the kind of model he may have provided in a way that has influenced uh, writers beyond this country, particularly in Europe. Well, I don't is know. Is he well known and well appreciated? I think is he, he is. Read yes. there? I think he is. Um, America is an interesting place for writers and people who care about the world, and not um, you know on the banal level of whatever commercials and Hollywood movies. And there are few writers who could represent America better than than Saul Bellow. You know its complicated reality. Um, and this is what people responded to. I remember that there was a, uh, I don't think it was the collected works, but it was a large number of novels translated at the end of the uh, 80s. 
in Sarajevo. And the upside of socialism that was that uh, translations were state-funded, and so the state paid for Bellows' translation. There's certain irony in that. Uh, but you know, he he uh, contradicts this notion of simple, simplified, simplistic America that uh, a lot of people here really like to imagine in this country that way, but a lot of people in Europe do too. Uh, and I think Bellow is, um, well, after all, James Wood, you know, he's British. Martin Amos is, is British. It was may, maybe Bellow was more accessible to them because of the fact that they share the language. Um, but Bellow, I think, is big. It's big for uh, a lot of writers simply because he's as good as he is. We are going to pause once again for a round of commercials and then directly to the phones and to our audience here at the Chicago Historical Society. Uh, we invite those in this room who want to join us to come forward and to the microphone to raise any questions. And similarly to our listeners, uh, by all means, dial us up at 591-7200. Some lines I gather are available. We don't have the usual board in front of me so that I can't quite see how many calls are coming in, but it's being relayed to me that uh, some callers are waiting and some spots are still open. 591-7200. We return directly after this. And we return to Richard Stern and to Alexander Hemon, and we go directly to the phones. 591-7200, the number. Good evening. You're on the air. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Um, I have a question about uh, Richard Stern's um, piece that he spoke about. He um, adverted something that was a description of a woman and prefaced his description by saying that uh, Mr. Zello's critics um, said he couldn't do women. I believe that's what Mr. Stern said. Mm -hmm. Now, the description in the... But, uh, the excerpt from Mr. Bellow's book was a very fine description of a woman, granted. But it was a description of a woman from the perspective of a person outside of the woman. Did Mr. Bellow's critics say he couldn't do women from an outside perspective, or did they mean Mr. Bellow cannot do women from the perspective of the woman? In other words, inside her own head a woman's dialogue, rather than a physical description of her? That's a very good uh, comment. Uh, if you read this uh, story, Leaving the Yellow House, you'll find that Bella gets into Hattie. You hear Hattie thinking. You have Hattie remembering, not just acting, but reacting to what's going on. She's very sharp about people. Uh, sometimes makes large mistakes, but she becomes enormously sympathetic, and I don't think any reader, male or female, would uh, shrink from her or make the ki a kind of comment that uh, that the early critics made that Bellow, you know, only could imagine and present uh, men. Thank you. We thank you, ma'am, for the call, and we'll go All to. Right. Uh, We'll go to a questioner from our own live audience here at the Chicago Historical Society. Maybe it's fun to share just uh, two days before Bellow's death, I was in Iran and one of the well-known Iranian director directly talked to the camera and asked me to take this tape to Bellow's family or himself. 
just share his admiration of his work. And I didn't know, when I got in the airplane, I read he passed away. Anyway, my question is, what's the role of Chicago in his works in general, and how this big city you know, was reflected and affected his career? Well, of course, it's vast. Just as Walt Whitman said, uh, uh, Walt Whitman and I of mighty Manhattan, a son, Bellow could have said, Saul Bellow and I of mighty Chicago, a son. Well, Chicago has these marvelous neighborhoods where you can hear Lithuanian eat Lithuanian food, go to a Lithuanian church, and so on. What a treasure for, for uh, somebody who has been without that in his life. And Bello went to schools here, and there were a variety of people and wonderful groups. And then uh, he explored the city, and the city is, as you know, if you're here a while, quite exciting. There's you have a, that lake. Sorry. Uh, there's a story, something to remember by, which takes place in Uptown. Geography is very uh, precise. But in that story, uh, it's about a boy who delivers flowers and then gets involved in an incident in which he loses all his clothes. And it's, you know, it's a Chicago winter, and so it's, it's a complicated operation getting home naked in the winter. But in this story, he says um, that he realized in the process, in, during his adventure, that his purpose in life is to interpret this place, this place being Chicago. Uh, that um, Actually, I have a quote somewhere. I wrote it down for this. He says... The narrator, beneath the apparent life of these streets was the, their real life, beneath each of each face, the real face, beneath each voice and its words, the true tone and the real message. Uh, so this boy, and one could speculate, Abello at some point, um, they decided to interpret this place, Chicago, not just in its urban, you know, um, spectacular differences, but also it's dancing for the world. It's, you know, understanding what is around you is an entry into the world of ideas. He prided himself on the knowledge of Chicago. And uh, I remember when he first came, Algren was still here. And they had a quarrel about something that happened in Chicago and the way it was. And, and uh, there was a sort of possessive quality about it. But he was always making marvelous remarks about it. I remember taking the L with him, uh, or the CTA toward O'Hare. And he said, uh, look at the city. It's like the kind of haircut you get at a barber's college, sort of <laughs> sheer There was never an uninteresting remark. There were seldom uninteresting remarks about it. But he was always alert to the look, the sound, the feel, the noise of, of what was around him. And I think uh, the Chicago that Bellow created will outlast the streets, the buses, the buildings, the people, the mayors that, were, that surround us now. And just as you go to London today and look for Dickens' London, and you sort of force yourself to see it, even though it's disappeared 100 years ago, you still feel a Dickensian quality in those streets. It's a, in a sense, it's a mis-seeing, and yet it's, a, it's as vivid as actual seeing, more vivid. 
And that's Bellow, Chicago. It is also, if I may say so, Stern's Chicago. You, you are not, uh, you don't have quite the same sensibility, uh, but you are certainly very much interested in Chicago, and much of your writing, many of your novels are set in Chicago, partially or fully. And uh, it, um, and the same rawness of Chicago, and the same, uh, uh, the same reduction to prime force, which uh, he saw in the lives of people in and around Chicago, I think is visible in yours as well. Well, thank you. That's a great compliment. I learned a lot from him. I tried to learn how to look in a way that I hadn't looked before I, I knew him or read him. And I just began seeing more things. Now, there's not one sentence in my work which perhaps, unfortunately, could be taken for one of his. But, it, but that sensibility... Well, he had his voice and you had yours. It's a well, very distinctive Well, of course, voice, we all have... Uh, our, our voices, and uh, that's what we are. And so do our listeners, and here's another one. Uh, good evening, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, sir. Uh, you were talking about uh, language in Bella's household, and I asked him about that once, and I thought I could add something. Um, the parents spoke Russian to each other. They spoke Yiddish to the kids. Kids spoke English among each other. That's what he told me. Yeah. Sounds right. It's typical for a Jewish fam a family of uh, Jewish immigrant parents from Eastern Europe. As a matter of fact, that describes my home uh, when I was a kid in Brooklyn rather than in uh, uh, Montreal. There you are. All right. We thank you, sir. Sure enough. We'll take a question from a member of our audience. Why, why do you think he left Chicago? Why did he leave the uh, University of Chicago to go to Boston University? Interesting question. Well, there was... There are several reasons. One, perhaps it was time to shift gears. And why not Boston, where the president of Boston University offered him a job and offered his wife a job, his marvelous wife. He's had two, at least two marvelous wives. That's, two out, two, that's two out of five. And uh, I didn't know the first one. I've known four of them. And I, I, the other two also had were remarkable in some ways. But at any rate, a job, whereas she was not offered a job at the university, there was no room for it. Secondly, there was a kind of heaviness and tension he felt. He, first of all, he wasn't treated as well as he should have been. He wanted some secretarial help. Would they give it to him? No. And his office was leaking. His friends were dying. Bloom, who lived about 50 yards away, died. He used to pass the houses of several people who died. Then a little before he moved, he and his wife went to Paris. And Paris was a city of which he had been quite scornful when he first came. He didn't want to be captured by the, I, the Paris that was so celebrated for Americans. Pardon the interruption. Didn't he write Augie March in Paris? He wrote parts of Augie March. He got the idea for Augie yeah. March in Paris and wrote parts of it there. But at any rate, and walking through the streets, which he, in his, in this case, innocent, said, oh, nothing can happen to you here, it's wonderful, as if there's no crime in Paris. But he was then enchanted by the Paris that he had made fun of 40 years before. And he said, you couldn't do that in Chicago. Chicago was heavy, dangerous, things happened. And of course things did happen, but he was aware of those. Whereas in Paris, he wasn't aware. So all th these reasons and probably 10 
or 15 others inclined him to move. And so he moved to Boston, which is about an hour and a half from the wonderful place that he had in Vermont. We are due for another quick stop for some commercials. We'll do that and then directly back to Richard Stern, Alexander Hemon, and calls from our listeners and, for that matter, questions from our live audience here at the Chicago Historical Society. If anyone wants to step up to the microphone, and we return directly after this. We have tonight, we're doing a special program from the Chicago Historical Society, a program focused on the achievement, the uh, career, and uh, the high art of Saul Bellow. Our guests are Alexander Hemon, author of the short story collections, uh, The Question. The Question of Bruno, I can't quite read my writing, uh, and Nowhere Man, uh, a writer of uh, great quality who's been uh, recognized as such. And one testimony to that is his receipt last year of the uh, MacArthur Foundation Award. He is, as well, a teacher of creative writing at Northwestern University and at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Our other guest, Richard Stern, is a distinguished member of the faculty at the University of Chicago uh, in the Department of English and uh, was for many years a close friend of Saul Bellows and is the author of many fine and important novels and great stories. Uh, one forthcoming book is um, a collection of his short stories, not all of them, but many of them, uh, titled Almonds to Jouf, Collected Stories, that is to be published by Northwestern University Press in a few months, is it? June. In June. And we go back to the phones. 591-7200, the number, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hello. Yes, sir. Hello. Yes, go ahead. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, mm. You mentioned Ravelstein earlier and uh, how some critics attacked it because of how it portrayed Bloom. And given uh, some of my past experiences in academic life, I was privy to certain correspondences, and I'd, I'd say from whom or where I was at because it would betray my confidentiality. But uh, I got the sense that Mr. Bellow, at least at some point, felt a deep remorse for what he had written or at least that it was attacked in that way. And in fact, some of his colleagues uh, who were a bit younger and were students of Mr. Bloom's felt that he had betrayed him and felt that Bloom would have felt betrayed. I was curious if your guests had any comments on that, if they had any personal interaction with Mr. Bellow, and if he, had any, if he himself said anything to your guests, anything about that. I'll listen off the air. Thank you. All right, sir. Did you discuss that with him? Uh, I don't recall discussing that with him. But uh, as I said earlier, I knew Bloom, and I think he would have been enchanted by this brilliant portrait of himself. Uh, Bellow once said something marvelous about fiction writing. It forces you to be just, because if you simplify a character, say, you turn him into a, a caricature and that's boring after the first few lines. If you're really writing fiction and really seeing a human being in depth and breadth, that's a kind of equity, a kind of justice which is noble. Uh, Sasha, do you feel something like this? Because I remember your wonderful portrait of this Bosnian poet whom you encounter 
in uh, Sarajevo. I haven't read Ravelstein, I have to admit, but um, you know, the richness of human life in some ways can only be represented in, in fiction. And so to take a book of fiction, and it's clearly a book of fiction because it's not called Bloom, but Ravelstein, um, to take a book of fiction as a portrait of you know, something that would be akin to a newspaper article, it's unfair to the book. And you know, obviously there are, there are questions, ethical perhaps, or even aesthetical questions of portraying someone who's recognizable in, in the novel. But in the end, if it's a, it's a valu uh, uh, valuable and legitimate work of fiction, that's, that's secondary at best. This is a book that should be judged on its own. There is, look, suppose someone describes your mother in a book or paints her in a way that's really distasteful to you. You will be unhappy. And some of us were unhappy with certain descriptions on portraits in Ravelstein which we know were based on, say, person X or person Y, and which we felt were unfair and savage. But that is not the ideal reader. Uh, the ideal reader is somebody for whom these people who didn't exist before now exist in the same way as George Bush exists, <clears throat> or Julia Roberts exists, or your milkman exists. They come with a vividness and a clarity and sharpness which really will transcend uh, the original lies in which they were based. Julia Roberts seems somehow to me more vivid than my milkman. <laughs> well, I've never had the pleasure of meeting the lady. No, nor have I. But uh, yes, well, of course, in a way, all these characters that we meet are treated in a way aesthetically. We, never, we don't know George Bush. We know 10,000 facts about him, and he becomes a kind of fictional character to us, but not with the kind of concentration and linguistic power that a first-rate writer can create for a character. With that, we go back to the phones. Uh, 5917200, some lines I gather are available, and if you want to um, join us, move quickly, and you may well get through, but let's go to this caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Hello? Yes, sir. Oh, this is Alan in Chicago. Hi. Yes, sir. Um, I heard a, a comment earlier on about the powers of observation and nature regarding Saul Bellow, and I wanted to share a personal experience I'd had with Mr. Bellow here in Chicago with the Esperanza Community Services. That's a school for severely, profoundly handicapped young adults and children. Um, he was friends with the administrator there, Bill Hunt, and he came one day and I was told he was going to come into my classroom, and I was absolutely terrified. He was going to spend the morning with me. And he came in, and uh, within a few minutes, he came, became completely invisible. But to see how he was able to observe these profoundly affected young children uh, who didn't have speech and uh, were quite difficult to control, his ability to observe these young people was quite remarkable, and his ability to disappear into the background, as it were, and drink this experience in had quite a profound effect upon me. And I believe this was at a time when he was studying Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy, and I would like to have a, a, a comment as to what uh, effect you think his studies of Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy had upon him and his work. I'll take the comments off the air. All right, sir, we thank you. I've heard about that interest of his, but I've never understood what it was about. Well, I, I want to thank the caller for a beautiful account of, of Bellow observing 
in his class. Well, what about Steiner? And As for Steiner, he found, uh, he read about Steiner in a book by the English literary critic Owen Barfield, whom we went to see. And Steiner answered this, I want, this spiritual hunger, which was always in him. After all, we would all like to know the truth about the universe, about creation. And Steiner was a remarkable man. I, one doesn't usually classify him with the great philosophers. But uh, Bella was enchanted by him and Humboldt's gift as some of the most beautiful spiritual writing I have ever read in a novel. I mean, the Pope recently died and he was a brilliant man and he, he wrote about uh, philosophy as well. My, I would doubt that at his best, he comes up with some of the magnificent pages in Humboldt's gift about the essence of life. And this, uh, these were affected by Steiner. Be Bello used to go to Steiner classes, Steiner meetings, and so on. I don't know how, if he continued it. I think he was something of an enthusiast with variable enthusiasms. Uh, he came in and he came out. Um, for example, I knew him some with regard to certain public issues. At one point, he was very committed to the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy on matters of public concern uh, dealing with nuclear weapons, obviously. And that was classified as a, quote, peace group. Uh, within four or five years after he committed himself to that, he became a board member, or at least lent his name to uh, a quite um, opposite organization, the Committee on the Present Danger, which was uh, very much concerned with Soviet threat and the need to remain uh, vigilantly, heavily armed uh, in, uh, as we confronted the Soviet Union. I don't fault that position, but there was a clear contrast between those two, and he took those two positions within, as I say, this, the period of four or five years. See, that's a, that's a, that, that might be a problem you know, for a public person, but for a writer, that's what you want to do. You want to be everywhere, and you want to be everybody, and to in in a novel, in a great novel, and certainly Bellows novel. Oh, but he wasn't there really as an observer. His mind had changed. I, well, yeah, but I mean, he had both experiences after the, sure. the, the second change. To and sure. so he could, in a novel, those experiences could be, or those positions could be present in a novel and could be in dialogue mm -hmm. with each other. There's this inherent democracy of fiction and literature that Bellow was after. No. It's not a good quality if you're running for office, perhaps. You know, even nice point. And uh, sometimes... Uh, you know, even close friends could uh, be very angry at him. I certainly had some very bad moments. He, you know, he, he characterized me much too simply for a while. I thought as a standard liberal would assume that I believed X, Y, and Z. And I would challenge him. And at the same time, I might be a little harsh about something he said. And so on. So, you know, we'd quarrel. He was, he but was as, wrong. as Sasha said, <clears throat> has nothing to do with what he was remembered for and what he will always be remembered well, he had, for. Well, he was a little bit wrong on you. You're not a standard liberal. You're a liberaloid, but you... Uh, I'm not a liberaloid. But, but you rise above it very often. <laughs> I'm proud to be a liberal in some senses. <laughs> and we pause uh, at this moment for our last round of commercials and then directly back. And we go to another uh, question from the audience here at the Chicago Historical Society. There's, there's a, a Jewish sensibility to much of Bellow's writings. How should we understand that sensibility and how conscious of it do you think he was? Oh, his, his Jewishness is 
very deep in him, and he, uh, you know, his, I don't know about his re religion, that is, I, 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 I have asked him at various times, do you believe that you will survive after death, or that there, and at, uh, earlier on, he, he certainly couldn't tolerate the idea that this vividness would be extinguished, and he did believe there would be a survival. And I know um, one of his remarkable wives who felt that he had that intuitive sense which is committed to survival after death. But you were talking about the Jewishness, and it's Jewish people, Jewish customs, the the habits of uh, of shul and uh, of home. This was precious to him, and he was terribly close to to his niece, who was a, a religious Jew married to a Jewish scholar, and. Uh, I imagine his boys were bar mitzvahed, though I don't know. But it's hard to put him into an orthodox or conservative reform. It was mostly the ambiance, the atmosphere, the habits, the rhythm of Jewish life which I was so giving, appealed to him. I was giving a speech at a, uh, a temple uh, in Chicago probably a good 20 years ago. And when I was finished, an elderly gentleman came up to me and said, you know, maybe my brother, he teaches also at the University of Chicago. I said, what's, your, I'm, no, what's his name? He said, well, my name is Bellows, but he changed it. Um, and that was the first I knew him, uh, another, another member of the family in town. Oh, well, the brothers were interesting. Yeah. Do you know the story of uh, after Herzog was finished and the, and the, the galleys were disappeared on the way? Uh -huh. And he gets, a, he gets a phone call saying, you want those galleys? And Bella says, yes, I certainly do. He says, meet me under the L at 63rd at 11.30. And uh, Bella says, yeah, and, 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 and what do you want? Bring 15,000 bucks. And Bella said, ah, that's going to be hard to get. You'll bring them. You'll be there. Anyway, finally the caller burst out laughing. It was, it was Morris's older brother. Oh, yeah? And so on. <laughs> Let's go back to the phones for another call. Good evening. You are on the air. Uh, yes, I hope you won't mind me quoting three lines of poetry, but I had uh, corresponded with Saul Bellow very briefly, and he agreed with me that uh, this is about the time he left Chicago. He agreed with me that uh, Thomas Moore had described in his immortal poem, Often the Stilly Night, the feelings he had upon leaving Chicago. I feel like one who treads alone, some banquet hall deserted, whose lights are fled, whose garlands dead, and all but he departed. Thus in the stilly night, ere slumber, slumber's chain has bound me, sad memory brings the light of other days around me. And that's often used when someone has outlived all his contemporaries. Did you say he quoted that to you, or you quoted that to him? It was, it was in a letter that I sent. I see. I felt that uh, 
gave the feeling of why he left Chicago, and indeed that was played repeatedly at the funeral of Queen Mother Elizabeth, uh, because she lived to be 100. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting... Uh, it is indeed, sir. We thank you for the call. Yes. I want to end by reading you a, a paragraph from uh, Saul Bellow's uh, speech when he won the no when he was given the Nobel Prize. Writers are greatly respected. The intelligent public is wonderfully patient with them, continues to read them, and endures disappointment after disappointment, waiting to hear from art what it does not hear from theology, philosophy, social theory, and what it cannot hear from pure science. Out of the struggle at the center has come an immense, painful longing for a broader, more flexible, fuller, more coherent, more comprehensive account of what we are as human beings, who we are, and what this life is for. At the center, humankind struggles with collective powers for its freedom. The individual struggles with dehumanization for the possession of his soul. If writers do not come again into the center, it will not be because the center is preempted. It is not. They are free to enter if they so wish. How does that strike you, Alexander? That sounds, strikes me as accurate um, that um, the claim that literature art has, that it has access to human experience that no other, um, no other uh, human activity really has. So it's well beyond just mere entertainment. Um, it, it teaches us something, can teach us something that it is not teachable otherwise. I wonder if he's complaining or at least uh, asserting indirectly in that passage that uh, many in the realm of literary uh, art have abandoned any commitment to larger humane purpose. Yes, perhaps. I don't know. It was, you know, it's the kind of Nobel Prize language that uh, he could pull off better than most. But I think he expresses it's something that Sasha and I and most good writers feel that, as uh, Lawrence said, it's the bright book of life. This, it's becoming, uh, I don't know if it's, it's going to hold up, but uh, I hope so. Where can you sit quietly by yourself, determining your own pace, and get absorbed in words which are as fresh or almost as fresh as when they were written? I mean, you have, sh you own Homer, you own Tolstoy. They, those words haven't changed. I mean, you know, giving the language, the translation, and things of this sort. But um, uh, in a hundred years, somebody sitting in uh, an auditorium like this can can read the Adventures of Augie March or Humboldt's Gift, or and there he'll have the mind, this extraordinary mind as freshly as we have it. It's, that's quite special. And that constitutes human culture. It constitutes the richness of human experience. Who else belongs on that shelf with regard to literary accomplishment in our time? Um, in America or anywhere. I, I like Nabokov very much. And um, they're not mutually exclusive. There is Bellow and Nabokov. Uh, I think literature as a category is democratic. Um, I, I have not um, read much of Philip Roth, but he's as admired as Bellow, certainly from that generation. Um, then there are, you know, older people, older than Bellow, 
There's a Bello. One of the great things with Bello is that he sees himself himself in a tradition that he belongs to, and this tradition goes on. There are younger people that owe much to Bello in more ways than one. Who were the older? Who were the younger? Uh, well, Jeffrey Eugenides, who could have been here tonight, who won the Pulitzer for Middlesex. We when we exchanged email, and for a long time the subject heading was. Um, I'm an American Chicago boy in the beginning of, of Augie March, and we have talked about Augie March uh, many a time. Um, and it's, you know, we share this as our favorite, one of our favorite books. The older ones, I, you know, I, I can't imagine literature in the English language being possible in the 20th century without Joyce. Uh, and and Bellow comes from that tradition, at least uh, in a sense that the language is the power. It, and there's no restriction in language. Um, you know, there's some control and very varying degrees of control in in various books. So, you know, um, Augie March is just out of hand. Yeah, but I don't think uh, Bellow ever composed anything as magnificent as Ulysses. Who else has? Right. Uh, but he taught he taught that every year for years, and. Uh, uh, but underneath that, yes, Bellow and Faulkner. I think of other writers, I think one should cite a writer named Cormac McCarthy, who has tremendous gifts. He doesn't have an herb as, as large as Bellow, but uh, I think he, he really has enormous gifts. I, I think Philip Roth is a tremendously gifted writer and has had an extraordinary career. He's kept inventing. He's gotten... Uh, and, and, and Updike is an, an extraordinary writer, uh, though I would say there are only four or five of his novels which are, are rich. They, he's not, a, I don't think, in Bellows' class. I don't think he feels he is. But he's a great man of letters. His criticism is wonderful. His, uh, so uh, there, there are quite a few, and uh, of younger people, you know, who knows? Uh, Bellow liked Dennis Johnson. There's a little book called Jesus and Suddenly Beautiful. It's very minor, but it's wonderful. And uh, Paget Powell's first two books, he didn't go on, but they were very good. And uh, we've got an enormous number of good writers in this country. To become a bellow is something else. I mean, you, you go on for 25, 35, 40 years inventing, uh, that's something else. Bellow's son, Adam Bellow, uh, will be on our radio program in a few months. I believe he's scheduled for um, something that uh, is, I forget what the book is, but it will shortly appear. It's on nepotism. Well, that's the one that was done last year. Oh, yes. he's got another one. I think I maybe see. there's Well, he's a very one. smart fellow. No, it is, I, I'm informed by Maggie Burns it is nepotism being reissued in paperback, oh. and he'll be with us to discuss that. And James Atlas, Bella's biographer, is scheduled to be on this program rather soon as well. April 25th, I am told. Uh, we are approaching the end of the available time. Our guests tonight have been Richard Stern, professor of English language and literature at the University of Chicago, whose most, uh, whose most recent book, uh, in fact about to be published, is a collection of his short stories, Almonds de Joux, Collected Stories. And Alexander Hemon has been with us, uh, and his uh, two most recent books, uh, which led to his receiving the MacArthur Award are The Question of Bruno and Nowhere Man, and he now teaches creative writing at Northwestern University and at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign.